Hello, I'm Merrick Schneider. Welcome to this podcast of articles from the Wall Street Journal, a presentation of Airs LA. You are listening to this recording, which is provided for the use of those who are blind or print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Today's first article is titled, Cannabis is Linked to Mental Illness by Susan Pinker. Hal Hirschfield has an article, The Benefits of Getting to Know Your Future Self. Then we'll do Cecilia's Boutini, Virtual Doctor Visits Help Healthcare Providers Go Greener. Michael Joseloff wrote, Unclaimed Funds Brought My Father Back. And Joe Queenan has an article, How About More VIP Treatment in Unusual Places? All these articles are from recent editions of the Wall Street Journal. So let's begin with today's first one. Cannabis is linked to mental illness. There was a new smell to New York City on my first visit since the pandemic. The New York I remember from 2018 was scented with subway fumes, car exhaust, and pretzels. Now the air was a heady blend of forest fires, car exhaust, and cannabis. Recreational marijuana was legalized in the state of New York in 2021. But even if cannabis is easy and legal to buy in 23 states and all of Canada, the risks of chronic use aren't talked about much. Several studies have shown that chronic cannabis use is linked to a higher incidence of schizophrenia among men in their early 20s, the age when the disease is usually diagnosed. The first paper on the topic, a Swedish study published back in 1997, found that heavy cannabis use was associated with a six-fold increase in schizophrenia risk. In the decades since, social scientists have unearthed a strong link between heavy cannabis use and other severe psychological illnesses, including clinical depression and bipolar disorder. Now, a new longitudinal study has examined the medical records of all citizens of Denmark over the age of 16, some 6.5 million people in all, for patterns of diagnosis, hospitalization, and treatment for substance abuse between 1995 and 2021. In the paper published in the journal JAMA Psychiatry recently in May, Dr. Oscar Haugard-Jefferson of Aarhus University and colleagues showed that people who had previously been diagnosed with cannabis use disorder were almost twice as likely to be diagnosed later with clinical depression. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, cannabis use disorder is characterized by craving marijuana, using it more often than intended, spending a lot of time using it, and having it interfere with friends, family, and work. Even more dramatically, the paper also found that people with cannabis use disorder were up to four times as likely to be diagnosed later with bipolar disorder with psychotic symptoms. As is true of many psychological disorders, the increased risk was higher in men than in women, and the more a person consumed, the greater the risk. 
The study did not distinguish between different forms and concentrations of cannabis. Though the association was strong, the authors note that they can't say for certain whether chronic and heavy cannabis use induces psychosis or whether people prone to mental illnesses are more likely to be heavy users. It makes sense that people who feel the symptoms of incapacitating depression or mania or those who sense apparitions or voices only they can hear might try to self-medicate with cannabis. Without a randomized control trial, which would be unethical in the extreme, it's hard to untangle these strands definitively. But the study is still eye-opening due to its sheer magnitude. With so many people over so many years, there is very little statistical noise. And because the information was gathered from the National Danish Health Registry, there were few dropouts, often a big problem in longitudinal studies. As much as possible, the researchers confirmed that the symptoms of a person's psychiatric disorder emerged after their chronic cannabis use and diagnosis, not before, and that they compared people who were alike in all ways except the frequency of their use. Like cigarettes decades ago, cannabis is now widely considered a harmless habit, easy and legal to buy in most places, socially acceptable, and pleasurable in the moment. Over the long term, it may be safer than drinking alcohol, but is it really safe for you and your teenage kids? Only time and more research will tell. And now the benefits of getting to know your future self. It's future you. You, it might seem like a strange philosophical question. But the answer to how you think about your future self could make the difference between decisions you ultimately find satisfying and ones you might eventually regret. A growing body of research suggests that in many ways, our future selves can seem to us like other people, even strangers. To get a sense of this, try picturing your next birthday and then picture your birthday 20 years from now. In both cases, you probably visualize typical things associated with a birthday, a cake, a celebration, family, friends. But in the first, you probably see the scene unfolding in front of you. In the second, if you are like many people, you might picture yourself as a separate person. That haziness around your future self is not just about unpredictability. In research published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, Emily Pronin of Princeton University asked groups of students in college dining halls to describe either a meal that they were currently eating or one a couple of decades in the future. The students envisioning their future meal were about four times as likely to use a third-person point of view, saying he or she to describe their future selves rather than I, as if they were outside observers witnessing the scene. I've seen similar results in my own research. The brain patterns that emerge on an MRI when people think about their future selves most resemble the brain patterns that arise when they think about strangers. This finding, replicated by other research groups, suggests that, in the mind's eye, our future selves look like other people. 
This can have major implications for our present actions. If you see future you as a different person, why should you save money, eat healthier, or exercise more regularly to benefit that stranger? Yet, as philosopher Derek Parfin puts it, we ought not to do to our future selves what it would be wrong to do to other people. If you see the interests of your distant self as more like those of your present self, you are considerably more likely to do things today that benefit you tomorrow. In research that I and others have been conducting for more than 15 years, it turns out that people fall somewhere along a spectrum. Some feel a stronger sense of emotional overlap with their future selves, others a weaker one. And those differences can have profound consequences. In one project, my team surveyed people age 20 to 86, asking them to rate how similarly they feel to their selves 10 years in the future. Participants were presented with seven pairs of circles, ranging from completely separate to nearly completely overlapping, and were asked to choose the set that best represented their perceived similarity. Only about half were relatively close. The rest chose options in the middle or mostly to fully separate. Those who felt more overlap with their future selves in the study accumulated more financial assets. Our findings, published in the journal Judgment and Decision Making, showed that people had amassed about 35% more wealth compared with those with below typical levels. These results remain robust even after considering other factors that could influence asset accumulation, such as age or educational background. Our relationships with our future selves extend beyond financial considerations. In another study, Tanya Cohn, Lee Thompson, and I examined responses to business dilemmas that involved a trade-off between financial gain and ethical concerns. We found that people testing at the high end of similarity to their future selves endorsed approximately half as many unethical strategies as those at the lower end. Furthermore, Michael Bixter and colleagues in a paper in the journal PLOS 1 revealed that college students who experienced a greater sense of connection and similarity to their future selves were more likely to achieve academic success. Each degree of increase on the similarity scale corresponded to an improvement of approximately one-tenth of a point in grade point averages. Relationships with our future selves also matter for general psychological well-being. In a project led by Joseph Reif, we analyzed data from the University of Wisconsin's National Survey of Midlife Development in the United States, which includes 5,000 adults aged 20 to 75. We found that those who perceived a great overlap in traits between their current and future selves ended up being more satisfied with their lives 10 years after filling out the initial survey. The correlation with finding satisfaction in life was comparable to the impact of major factors such as relative income and educational background. So how can we better befriend our future selves and feel more connected to their fates? For one, consider a technique that charities use to increase donations. 
They make the recipients more identifiable. When the potential beneficiaries of charity are singled out, it's easier to identify them with them and see the world through their eyes. My collaborators and I have been trying to produce that psychological mindset with what we call vividness interventions. We have found, for instance, that showing people images of their older, grayer selves produced with the help of graphic artists and algorithms that mimic the aging process increases intentions to save for the long term. In one study among a group of nearly 50,000 retirement account holders in Mexico, exposing people to such images led to a 16% increase in the number who chose to make an additional deposit to their accounts. In a similar experiment in rural Kenya, economists Annette John and Kate Orkin asked thousands of women to engage in a theoretical conversation with their future selves as a visualization technique. Then the researchers tested the women's propensity to take specific steps with long-term benefits. The participants in the study exhibited a 22% higher likelihood of using free tablets to chlorinate their household drinking water, as well as a 26% increased propensity to save money regularly over a 10-week period compared with a control group. Besides such visualization exercises, you might try writing a letter to and then from your future self. As demonstrated by Yuta Chimisa and Ann Wilson in their 2020 study in the journal Self and Identity, when high school students engaged in this type of send and reply exercise, they experienced elevated levels of feeling of similarity with their future selves. Letter writing and visualization exercises are just a couple of ways we can connect with our future selves and beyond. But the larger lesson here is clear. If we can treat our distant selves as if they are people we love, care about, and want to support, we can start making choices for them that improve our lives, both today and tomorrow. And now, Cecilia Boutini's article, Virtual Doctor Visits Help Healthcare Providers Go Greener. Virtual doctor's appointments are helping healthcare companies reduce carbon emissions, though sustainability is mostly seen as a side benefit of telehealth rather than its main driver. The use of telehealth picked up considerably during the COVID-19 pandemic, with virtual visits increasing 38 times from their pre-pandemic levels and then largely stabilizing, according to figures provided by McKinsey. At first, the practice was seen mostly as a way to improve patient access and convenience while reducing costs. But as the trend stabilized, healthcare companies started viewing virtual consultations as an opportunity to improve their carbon footprint. Telehealth can cut costs as some healthcare providers are willing to accept lower reimbursement rates since, for example, fewer personnel are employed or doctors can perform some consultations from home, said Cynthia Cox, Vice President and Program Director on the Affordable Care Act at Health Policy Researcher, KFF. 
The healthcare industry is responsible for about 5% of global greenhouse gas emissions, of which the United States healthcare system alone accounts for one quarter. The urgent, round-the-clock nature of medical care means there is a limit to how much emissions can be reduced. Energy, food, and water consumption in hospitals and other facilities, production of pharmaceuticals and chemicals, along with waste management, are the biggest sources of carbon emissions for the American healthcare industry, according to a 2020 study cited by the United States Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. Scope 3 emissions, those in the supply chain beyond the operations and energy uses of the reporting units, account for about four-fifths of the total greenhouse gas emissions of the United States healthcare sector, according to the study. Similarly, in England, medicines, buildings, equipment, and other supply chain items generate most of the National Health Service emissions, according to official NHS figures. While some health providers had started sketching out sustainability strategies before the pandemic, including, for example, using solar panels and energy from renewal sources, the increased uptake in telemedicine made them realize that emissions could also be saved by avoiding transport to and from healthcare facilities. Kaiser Permanente, one of the biggest nonprofit healthcare organizations in the United States, started examining the environmental impact of driving to and from its 39 hospitals and 623 medical offices in 2016. But it was during the pandemic that both the benefits of telehealth and the possibility to reduce those emissions really crystallized. Virtual care has now created an expectation of our patients that they will have access, responses, information, and care virtually that a lot of people didn't expect before, said Colin Cave, MD, and Medical Director of External Affairs, Government Relations, and Community Health at Kaiser Permanente Northwest. In this sense, patient convenience emerged in the first and primary purpose of virtual visits, but it also led to different considerations. We understand that climate is health, so it became apparent that there could also be an advantage with regards to the environment. Telehealth use is able to reduce carbon, Kaiser Permanente's carbon footprint by about 7,500 metric tons a year, according to the company. It isn't use, huge, but it's something that we have the power to make work, Cave said. Kaiser Permanente emits 800,000 metric tons of carbon dioxide yearly, mostly from electricity and natural gas used to keep facilities running, according to the company. The figure includes Scope 3 emissions, it said. In past years, the company has been trying to cut emissions by purchasing utility-scale electricity from renewable sources, including solar arrays, improving building efficiency, and buying carbon offset, it said. For BUPA, a UK-based provider of private health insurance and care, telehealth has emerged as an asset in the company's broader digitalization strategy, which in turn is seen as a way to reduce Scope 3 emissions 
and eventually get to its goal of net zero emissions by 2040. The company has designed an app for teleconsultations that is able to show patients the carbon emissions avoided through that consultation. Bupop patients in Spain, where the app has been rolled out, were able to save about 6,655 net tons of carbon dioxide via their teleconsultations in 2020 and more than 8,000 net tons in 2022, the company said. Now, Unclaimed Funds Brought My Father Back by Michael Joseloff. I got word via email back in February that New York State's unclaimed funds office was holding money for me, a health insurance check. I filled out the required paperwork and sent it off. Months went by. Puzzled by the delay, I revisited the fund's website and was shocked when my late father's name, Stanley Joseloff, popped up. He, too, had unclaimed funds from song royalties. I knew that my father had moonlighted as a songwriter and had written the lyrics to Dear Arabella, which Glenn Miller's orchestra recorded in 1941. Again, I collected and mailed off the necessary paperwork. This was the second time since Dad died in 1989 that Arabella and I had crossed paths. A decade ago, my wife and I were listening to WNYC when Danny Stiles, a broadcaster who billed himself as the Vicar of Vintage Vinyl, introduced the Glenn Miller Orchestra playing Dear Arabella with lyrics by Stan Joseloff, music by Sidney Lippman. I was thrilled. A World War II ditty, Dear Arabella tells of a draftee, Private Johnny, who's writing to his girlfriend back home. Dear Arabella, this army life's okay, but Arabella, I miss you more each day. Kindly remember, wherever you may be, your, your private property's private property. After my two Arabella encounters, I searched my father's old files and discovered more than 50 original songs and poems and a letter to his Arabella collaborator. Witty and rhyming, it was classic dad. I could write a war song of bombs bursting in air, but who'd be left to sing it by the rocket's red glare? My father wanted to make songwriting his career, but his parents weren't keen on it. So after graduating from college and law school, he took a job as in-house counsel to Lee and J.J. Schubert, the powerhouse theater producers and owners, which led to a 12-week gig in 1937 writing songs for Billy Rose Aquacade. Rose, an impresario and showman par excellence, staged his extravaganzas in an outdoor amphitheater with a large pool and cast of synchronized swimmers, actors, and singers. That's big break came when Dear Arabella won first place in a Hearst newspaper song contest. Glenn Miller chose it as his Song of the Week, and Hearst published the music and lyrics in 20 newspapers nationwide. Few people outside the family have heard of the song today, but the unclaimed funds notice and the play on the car radio 
brought my father back to life in a way nothing else could. I'm still waiting for the royalty check. Not that I'm going to cash it. I'm going to frame it and place it alongside a treasured 78 RPM record with the trademark dog and phonograph RCA logo and the title Dear Arabella on the label. And now, how about more VIP treatment in unusual places? The Wall Street Journal recently ran a story about how VIP passes are radically remaking the music festival business. Fed up with getting banged around and having beer spilled all over them by the great unwashed, concert goers are willing to pay $400 for one-day festival passes so that they can be close to the stage, have access to bathrooms with no lines, enter and exit the venue effortlessly, and just generally avoid rubbing shoulders with the down-market hoi polloi. VIP passes of one sort or another exist in all sorts of areas. First-class sections in planes and trains, express lines to the top of the Empire State Building, priority check-in lines in hotels. But the fact that VIP passes are now becoming so popular in these festival settings once the very definition of the everyone-is-equal mindset, suggests that VIP passes could be introduced in a number of other unexpected areas. Here are a few possibilities. Kindergarten VIPs. It's all well and good to designate parents or grandparents as VIPs during Parent of the Day events. But why should preschoolers have to wait their turn for show-and-tell if their parents can effortlessly bankroll priority seating. Why shouldn't well-heeled tykes be able to zip to the front of the line and be the first ones to share their thoughts about their favorite stuffed animal or snow globe with their peers? VIP kindergarten passes would also provide children with their own bathrooms, a much higher grade of apple juice, their own personal corner of the sandbox, and one-on-one access to the ebullient teacher herself, while other kids get stuck with the teacher's dour assistant. And at recess, kindergarten VIPs get first crack at the monkey bars. Commuter VIPs. In Washington, D.C., Constitution Avenue will be roped off at rush hour for VIPs. In Los Angeles, it will be Santa Monica Boulevard. In Denver, VIPs will have non-stop rush hour access to Interstate 25. Everyone else has to use local roads. One other benefit? VIPs can park in front of loading docks and fire hydrants without fear of being ticketed. And in New York City, between 3 and 7 p.m., urban VIPs get the Lexington Avenue subway all to themselves. Starbucks VIPs. There's venti chai, and now there'd be VIP venti chai. Walk-up VIP customers loop right into their own special cordoned off queue, while drivers pull into a super private latte lane. VIP beverages also come supersized with complimentary Madeline cookies. And venti VIPs get their own bathrooms. VIP barbershop passes. Not only do you get 
to nip right past the shaggy slob whose hair will take 45 minutes to cut, but the barber is not allowed to give you his special take on the designated hitter rule, those bums down in Washington, or how deep state is ruining the tonsorial trade. You're in and you're out. VIP lifeguard passes. Fell out of the jet ski, tumbled out of the kayak, got caught in a riptide, while other beachgoers flounder, frantically treading water, waiting to be rescued, the lifeguards pile into the rescue boat, rocket right past them, and come directly to your aid. VIP lifeguard passes will come in really handy when voracious great white sharks have been sighted in the area. And VIP jury duty? Yes, yes, we all have to do our civic duty from time. But why should we all have to sit there for hours waiting to be called, knowing that we're almost certainly not going to be selected anyway? VIP jury duty passes mean that you show up at the courthouse and immediately get introduced to the judge and rival attorneys who can size you up, too young, too old, bad attitude, journalist, and disqualify you on the spot. This wouldn't just save hours, it could save days. Conversely, for the morbidly curious and extra special, extra expensive VIP jury pass will virtually guarantee that you get selected for hair-raising murder cases. VIP DMV? No need to explain. No need whatsoever. That brings us to the end of today's articles. I'm Merrick Schneider, and I'll be back soon with more articles. Thank you for listening.